everyone, and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal's October 2022 podcast of October's Papers. I'm Sarah Edwards, and with me today... I'm Rick Boddy. And today we've got a smorgasbord of papers to talk with you. Everything from geriatric emergency medicine, paediatric emergency medicine, a bit on trauma, back pain, and just some general chit-chat about some other stuff. So... I'm going to kick off with Rick talking about a bit about geriatric emergency medicine and the experience of older adults within the emergency department. Rick. So I love this paper. It's a great way to get us started. We all know that times have been very hard in emergency departments. And if you're anything like me, you've probably been a little bit concerned about patient experience in the departments with all that crowding. I've been thinking for a while that it would be great to have some qualitative research to explore patient experience in the emergency department. And that's exactly what we've got with this fantastic paper from Regan uh, et al. Some well-known names in there as well. The senior author is Simon Conroy, who is uh, very well known in in looking at uh, emergency medicine for older people. Uh, And in this uh, research, they've done semi-structured interviews with older adults who attended the emergency department They had to be at least mildly frail, so they scored at least five on the clinical frailty scale, and they were recruited from three different emergency departments. So the authors have then interviewed them. They've done semi-structured interviews, which means you've got a guide for some questions that you want to ask, but the interview could actually go off in any direction, according to how the responses go. And they've interviewed a total of 40 patients and 60 carers. And then they've analysed this qualitative data using something called framework analysis, which is quite a nice way of picking out the themes and you create a kind of matrix for yourself to try and make sense of the data. And they've picked out the important themes from these interviews. Now, some of these will be familiar to practising emergency physicians uh, and some of them, I don't know, they might be a little bit surprising. Let me take you through them. So the first thing, is they noted that there was a general reluctance to attend the emergency department among the participants. They didn't want to come and see us. So they're coming to see us as a last resort, really. Some of them were afraid. They were often afraid that they weren't going to go home again. They're older adults, remember? They don't know what's going to happen once they go to the emergency department. Some were scared of picking up a bug. Some were scared that they were wasting our time or wasting their own time. So they were generally not wanting to be there. Having got there... They then picked out a theme to do with staff care and attitudes. Now, interestingly, the participants picked out themes to do with attitudes more than competency. So they didn't comment so much on competency of the staff or what they perceived to be competency, but they were quite positive about the attitudes of the staff looking after them. Uh, So they emphasised the um, manner, the responsiveness of the staff rather than their technical ability. Uh, And that's quite nice. And they emphasise the importance of being treated with respect. That's good. And that mirrors my experience. We pick out these patients who've been waiting for so long in the emergency department, and yet they're still so complimentary about the nice staff they've encountered. So that's good. That's a positive thing. Next, they highlighted the importance of information and communication. So they wanted to be kept informed about what's going on. Uh, What's likely to happen? Will they be admitted? Will they be discharged? What are they waiting for now? How long will they be there? Uh, That's very familiar to me. We did some qualitative research some years ago where we looked at patients suffering in the emergency department, and they also told us that they wanted to be kept informed about what's going on. So there's definitely something there for us, making sure that we have clear communication with patients and they know where they are in their journey and what to expect from here. The next thing they picked out was to do with the environment and 
personal comfort. And here is where we start to see some other things that we might expect with crowding and long waits. So some of the participants felt that it was chaotic. The environment wasn't universally described negatively. In fact, one of the emergency departments appeared to be quite new and the patients were quite complimentary about it, saying it was quite private. But they were very negative about food and drink and hospitality, saying that they often went long periods without being offered food or drink, even diabetic patients. That, unfortunately, is something that um, I, I realize is a risk in our emergency departments at the moment, and it appears that we're failing our patients on giving them food and drink and looking after their basic needs. It's also something that came out in our qualitative research some years ago. And they emphasized the importance of having family there. So um, that's a, another thing that we should encourage, especially now that you know we're able to do that uh, with the state of the pandemic. The final thing they picked out was time waiting in the emergency department. Now, a quarter of the patients waited less than four hours in the ED in total, and they were satisfied and even surprised that they were through so quickly. But others had those really long waiting times that are all too familiar for us, 12 hours or more, and that was difficult for the participants to endure. They were uncomfortable on trolleys. They again picked out the fact that they didn't have enough food or drink. They had a lack of sleep. I think that's a real issue with artificial light in the emergency department. It's really difficult to sleep. It's noisy. It's chaotic. So lots of negative experiences. And then we saw an accompanying editorial, which was really nice. So that's from uh, Mary Darwood, led as uh, first author on that one. And uh, in the editorial, they picked out some really important factors from that. So the, you, have, you should have a read of it because there are some great quotes. I'll just read a couple of quotes out that I've picked out from the editorial. To our shame, these interviews have drawn into sharp focus just how disenfranchised and marginalised frail older people feel when using our services. And then the last one I'm going to pick out is the bottom line of the editorial. This is how they finished the editorial. And I think that this is a really nice way to finish ensuring enabling and supportive environments will only be realized if we engage with older patients and their voices are heard. So it just emphasizes how important it is that this research was done. But even more importantly, we've got to take uh, account of the findings and we've got to do something about it and make patient experience better. So Sarah, what did you think about those two papers and about this issue in general? Was it a surprise to me? Probably not. Is it disappointing? Hugely disappointing. And I think in some ways there's, you know, this is my personal opinion that perhaps we haven't recognised that caring for the older adults within the emergency department probably needs a similar sort of care as we do for the paediatric patient in the emergency department, which has its own special area, section, of the department. And I think I'm not surprised by what the paper says. I'm saddened by what the paper says, but I think it's really important research that's been done. I also think it's been really important research to show that you can do qualitative work within a busy emergency department as well. And I think for me, it's really the things that these patients have said probably applies to all our patients. I just think for the older adult. It is probably much more challenging for lots of different reasons than when you're perhaps my age or your age, because ultimately hospitals are scary places. And particularly the generation of older adults, you know, I think recently of my gran who got admitted to hospital, she's in her 80s and she thought she was going to die when she was going to hospital. So I think there's a lot of those sort of feelings. So 
what am I going to take away from this paper? I'm going to try and communicate better with my patients, make sure that I'm offering them hot, you know, something to eat and drink, even if it's not me necessarily getting it, but at least we thought about it. And I'm really excited to see what more research is going to come out. Yeah, I think those are really great take-home points, um, which I'll also take away from this paper. And it does highlight the importance of this research and the need for more research like this, because it really helps get that patient voice heard, which is so important in the current climate. Moving on, we're going to take a little bit of a sideways step to a um, cord requina compression syndrome. So, and Sarah, you've taken a look at a big retrospective study of uh, cord requina and potential risk characteristics. Yeah, so quadraquina, really uh, one of those, you know, exam favourites, one of those things that we don't want to miss in the emergency department. And I think, you know, I've been in emergency medicine long enough, like you, Rick, we do still see missed cases, I'm sure. So this paper um, called The Determination of Potential Risk Characteristics for Quadraquina Compression in the Emergency Department, Patients Presenting with Atraumatic Back Pain, it's a four-year retrospective study, and the lead author is Angus et al. So essentially what they did, um, they between 2014 and 2018, within an established emergency department, within the electronic patient record, they set up a, a pre-populated you know, guide of atraumatic back pain to try and get, get patients when they're seen by clinicians to fill in, uh, not patients, for doctors to fill in or clinicians to fill in this form to try and gather data with the aim of trying to understand with patients who present with atraumatic back pain, if they go on to have cordial equina, what are the symptoms that are, you know, may give you a better indication that this is likely to be cordial equina. Over this period, they did over 2000 scans, 2000 MRI scans with uh, 996 of those MRI scans being done for query cordraquina. So that works out roughly, I was doing quick maths, about 250 a year, which is nearly one to one and a half query cordraquinas every one and a half days, basically, roughly. And the listeners here will know the current sort of UK preferred NICE, so National Institute of Clinical Excellence, red flag symptoms and signs. So things like bilateral sciatica, severe or progressive uh, bilateral neurological deficit, difficulty in initiation, micturation, perineal change in, you know, saddle anesthesia, all of that. And the reason why I mentioned those red flags that we're currently working in within the UK, which are the similar probably around the world, is that by looking at these 996 patients, they were able to elicit some of the, the most sensitive and specific signs that they felt were more likely to show you radiological corda equina syndrome. So what were the signs? So the signs were, so bilateral pain, so bilateral back pain or bilateral pain in general had a, a p-value of less than 0.001 of that being a factor associated with quadraquina. Next was bilateral weakness, uh, again with a p-value of 0.001. Sensory loss in dermatonal distribution, so again 0.03. And bilateral ankle plus or minus knee jerk reflexes being absent, so less than 0.001. And those four uh, factors in examination findings 
were present in nearly all of the patients, not quite all, but nearly all. Going forward, really, from this paper, what's really interesting that I found was that PR examination, not really helpful. There is some mention around, you know, actually bladder disturbance. That's one thing that's, you know, heavily thought of that we need to think about. But actually, in this paper, they didn't find that hugely sensitive or specific. Moving forward, really, you know, what does that mean for us as emergency medicine doctors um, and clinicians? Well, we perhaps need to really probably explore this problem a bit further and really understand the the symptomology um, and the signs that are available. What What are your thoughts, Rick? I think it's really important research to guide what we do. I was particularly moved, I guess, by the data on PR examination. I always feel it's one of those things that we should only really do if we absolutely have to, because it does compromise a patient's dignity to stick a finger up the bottom. Um, so it's, if we're really getting important information, then yes, let's do it. But if we don't, if we're not, then let's not do it. And sometimes I wonder if we actually need to in patients with suspected cord requina. We've, if we've already made the decision to do an MR scan, what's the point? Uh, and if it, will it really help you to rule out cord requina compression? Well, these data suggest not. If you've got abnormal perianal sensation and examination, it had a sensitivity of 50% and a specificity of 53%. I mean, that's almost perfectly useless. So it really reinforces the idea that it's not an examination that's going to help us in this situation. So uh, I, I took that home as a, you know, as, a, as a one key message from this paper. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because, you know, I think about the the use of the PR exam perhaps in another modality that 10 years ago, or over 10 years ago when I started emergency medicine in trauma, and it was like, right, you log roll the patient, you stick your finger up their bottom, and hugely dignified, undignified, you know, and actually, if you're going to scan the patient, what is the utility of that in that context? So again, really challenging some perhaps dogma or, you know, things that have been passed down for generation and generation. So, you know, I'm really excited and hope that in the world that other people are going to do some more research about this. Anyway, moving on from uh, Cordroquina and PR examinations over to Rick this time to talk a little bit more about the frail uh, or the older adult and anticoagulation and trauma. Yeah, so we've had some really nice papers in recent months from Victoria in Australia. And here's another one. So they've analysed data from their trauma registry to look at the effect of uh, anticoagulant therapy on mortality in patients with major trauma. So they've had a look at major trauma patients in Victoria between 2017 and 2018. These patients were all older, so they were aged over, seven, over 65. They had an injury severity score more than 12, or they died because of injury, or they'd been to ICU, or they'd needed urgent surgery. Those are the patients who were entered into their trauma registry. They then had a look at whether they were taking anticoagulants. So they categorised patients as on anticoagulants, which are DOAX or warfarin, or antiplatelets, or no. Uh, anticoagulants. Now, if you were on a DOAC or warfarin and an antiplatelet, you went into the first of those groups. And they then had a look at the association between those groups and inpatient mortality. Now, it might not be that surprising, but there was a higher mortality in the anticoagulated group. So the in-hospital mortality was 31.7% for patients taking anticoagulants. It was 18.4% for those on antiplatelets and 14.6% for those who weren't taking either. Now, just to say that again, that is quite a difference, isn't it? 31.7% in anticoagulated patients, 
14.6% in non-anticoagulated patients. What a difference. So the odds ratio is 2.73, and that was statistically significant. So it's quite a significantly higher mortality. For the patients on antiplatelets, actually, there was no suggestion that they had a higher mortality than the people who weren't taking anything. The odds ratio is 1.12. So they didn't seem to be doing worse. They, the authors have also had a look at Glasgow outcome scale. So they looked at the extended Glasgow outcome scale to look at functional outcomes. Apparently, all patients in this trauma registry are contacted regularly after discharge to see how they're doing. And they've managed to get the Glasgow outcome scales for those patients. What they found is no difference in, in Glasgow outcome scale, depending on whether you're anticoagulated or not. Now, you might say, well, okay, but these anticoagulated patients are sicker, they're older, they've got more comorbidities than the others. That could explain the findings. The authors, however, did adjust for all of those factors and the relationship persisted. So they adjusted for age, sex, Charlson comorbidity index, the mechanism of injury, the GCS and the shock index. And those findings persisted. So I think it's a clear message. If you're on anticoagulation and you are a victim of major trauma, then unfortunately outcomes are pretty poor. So it just emphasizes the importance of focusing carefully on those patients. A lot of them were traumatic brain injuries. A lot of the patients had subdural hemorrhages, for example. Uh, so I guess you could say no massive surprise that they're having worse outcomes. My biggest question would be, what will happen as we get more and more familiar with reversal agents for anticoagulants because for patients who are on DOACs we know well one the bleeding rate if anything is potentially slightly lower than on warfarin uh, and number two now we've got specific reversal agents they cost a lot of money and we're not that familiar with them because we don't use them very often but as we get more familiar with them will that mortality rate start to come down if we can get timely reversal that's my biggest question but um uh, I think important stuff that highlights a patient group that's at high risk of adverse mortality. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, really good study, really looking at, you know, what is a common problem. Well, problem is that, you know, we see a lot of people on anticoagulation and really trying to understand, you know, actually the, the wider implications of that anticoagulation. And particularly as the population ages, of course, we're going to see more patients who are older, who are likely to be on some sort of anticoagulation. So, you know, we need to think and make sure that we're consenting patients for the right reasons to be on these anticoagulation. Absolutely. So moving on, we're going to take a look at preorbital and orbital cellulitis in children. You've had a look at a big survey from the Peruki Network. Yeah, so fantastic research again coming out from the Peruki Network, this time surveying emergency physicians across the UK and the Peruki Network, looking at what guidance is out there and how they manage uh, periorbital and orbital cellulitis in children. And we were talking just before we were recording this podcast about, you know, these are challenging diagnoses in children. They're also challenging diagnoses in adults as well. And I think particularly with children uh, being a PEM clinician myself, you know, there's always that, ooh, are, you know, do we overcall it, undercall it? Difficult to know. The Peruki Network did this and the, and the lead author is uh, Meriel Tolhurst Cleaver and um, the group put out a survey to all the institutions looking at what their clinical practice guidelines said, what would happen and what, what they found were 
And what they did, which I thought was really good, they gave four typical case scenarios of sort of a peri or a preorbital cellulitis within that survey to try and understand really what patients were likely, you know, to happen with them when they came in. The people that were um, filling in these surveys were actually consultants within these institutions because really this work is to try and understand what current practice is and I'm hoping this means that the Peruki network will be going on to do some further work looking at this. So what did they find? There were 59 institutions contacted and they got an 83% response rate which is incredible for any survey sort of work and about two-thirds of these sites actually had a clinical a formal clinical practice guideline looking on how you manage periorbital and orbital cellulitis in children. What you can do with clinical practice guidance is you can use um, something called the right criteria. Um, And the right criteria basically looks at at how good a clinical practice guideline is in, you know, delivering what you needed to do. And it looks at various factors, everything from the title to, you know, thinking about management specific and thinking about, you know, overall how how the document is. Most of these clinical practice guidelines across all these institutions were poor with an average of 6.7 out of 35 for the right criteria and I think this probably reflects how challenging a diagnosis that this may be within uh, children. Most clinical practice guidelines recommended investigations for severe disease um, and you know Good proportion of clinical guidelines for milder disease suggested that, you know, you discharge people on oral antibiotics. The most worrying features within the guidance were things like proptosis, ophthalmoplegia, systemically unwell with a fever, and thinking about things such as if they previously failed on oral antibiotics for the treatment. And why this is important, really, is this probably fits with what I think would be worrying, you know, for these patients but also, you know, it's important to understand where the clinical practice guidelines focus. And finally, really, what's really interesting is that looking at the four case scenarios that were done within the survey, and I highly recommend you have a little look at this short report within the journal this month, is that even some of the milder cases, which you may probably could discharge an or antibiotics, there is a desire to admit these patients more often than not and admit them even for either oral or IV antibiotics. So I think the bottom line really is with this paper is that I think there is mixed guidance across the United Kingdom that is used to treat orbital and periorbital cellulitis in children. Practice is variable and most of the clinical practice guidelines within the UK from the survey suggest that they're not brilliantly written Um, with perhaps not great content within and ophthalmoplegia, proptosis and systemic unwellness are the symptoms that most of these guidelines focus on when considering management for these children. Those are really important take-home messages. I really like how it highlighted the variation in practice. For the fourth case they presented to the respondents, this was a case of a systemically well six-year-old with moderate edema and eye redness no visual disturbance or other eye signs, but they had a fever of 38 degrees. Now have a think about what you'd do with that one as you're listening to this podcast. But the respondents uh, really couldn't make their minds up. 
uh, as a group, 49% said they'd treat that patient with oral antibiotics and 51% with intravenous antibiotics. 59% would admit the patient, 35% would discharge without follow-up. I mean, that's a real split down the middle uh, with that case. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about how you manage that case, which highlights the need for further research in the area. So important stuff from Peruki. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would imagine knowing Peruki and knowing some of those authors really well, I think there's work afoot on this topic. So I'm really excited to see what they're coming next. And I've got the final paper, which is by Lowe et al. And this time it's around point of care testing for tetanus immunity, uh, systematic and meta-analysis. And a partly I picked this paper was because like a lot of people, both not in the UK and around the world, you know, July, August is the switch over time where you'd swap between departments. And I've moved to a department where they use point of care tetanus testing, having worked all around the United Kingdom. I've never seen it before. And I thought this was a really interesting paper and it may be something that departments uh, haven't used or haven't thought of. The authors did a standard systematic review and meta-analysis, and I won't dwell on the methodology, but they followed the PRISMA guidance, so the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis, and went through all of that. Um, The background to this really is it's estimated around 10% of the 25 million annual ED attendances are due to lacerations of some description, and it's estimated the cost would be of some of these. So there's a cost of around £7.80 uh, per tetanus vaccine and around £170 per vial of tetanus immunoglobulin if you're going to need to give it. How within the UK we often determine a tetanus prone wound is, you know, we use the Green Book guidance, which is the government guidance, which is available to us. And, you know, you have a look at the wound. You also try and ascertain um, a patient's tetanus status from their history. That's really how most of us, you know, will will think about, is this a tetanus prone wound? Uh, Do I need to give the vaccine? Do I need to give the vaccine plus the immunoglobulin? For a cost price of what is available. So a bit like we've been doing lots of point of care testing for lots of things now, everything from troponins through to use and ease to lots of things, even COVID testing, there is a tetanus quick stick that is available where you can test somebody's immunity to tetanus. Um, and that's priced at around 475. And why I'm telling you some of the costs here is just to give you an idea because part of this paper was also looking at the cost effectiveness and how much money we could save. So from this big systematic review and meta-analysis, they found 12 studies that looked at um, these things. And what did they find? Well, so the tetanus quick stick appears to have greater levels of diagnostic accuracy than compared with patient recall and compared with using the gold standard, which is an uh, ELISA um, test. So the, the vaccination history with these patients looking through all these papers had a sensitivity of 39% and a specificity of 85%, i.e. patients aren't great at recalling whether they've had their vaccine or not and when it was. And uh, with the the tetanus quick stick, the sensitivity was 90% with a specificity of 97%, which I think is incredible. When thinking about cost effectiveness of this, 
it's more cost effective for the tetanus quick stick they found using this metal analysis, meta-analysis and systematic review in a younger patient. I, you know, those that are probably less than 50 years old, because actually then it's un, you're unsure of if your immunity is still there. They found it got less cost effective as you got older, because actually your immunity naturally wanes as you get older. And um, overall, they found for point of care tetanus IG lateral flow assays, they found a sensitivity around 90% and a specificity around 97%. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is that for the NHS, which obviously is publicly funded, for those pa- for some patients and the NHS, you could estimate to save around £173.5p per patient, per tetanus-prone patient, by um, assessing their tetanus status. Um, and I think it's a really interesting paper for something that we see something quite common and probably... I would imagine we probably overgive the vaccine plus or minus overgive the immunoglobulin. And I hadn't actually realised how expensive it was, Rick. Yeah, super interesting. Really important uh, research. I'd say one caveat is um, when you look at cost effectiveness, you probably want as well just to make sure a cost utility analysis where we look at health outcomes as well and the price you might have to pay to uh, save one quality adjusted life year, for example, because missing one case of tetanus is catastrophic because of the high mortality rate for the patients. Um, and that's not quite in this publication, but, we, but it, that's not to detract from it because it's still a very, very important piece that quantifies sensitivity and specificity of this simple lateral flow test and works out a raw comparison of the costs with each approach and seems to back point of care testing, which is, uh, which is really interesting. Great. So that brings us to the end of October 2022's EMJ of the month. Um, Hopefully you've enjoyed our smorgasbord of different papers. Um, And Rick and I look forward to seeing you next month in November 2022. Look forward to it. Take care. Have a good month. See you. Bye.